Good morning. Welcome to Highland Community Church. I hope that you are well prepared to celebrate the birth of our Savior. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to grab it, open to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. While you're there, let me just remind you on December 22, we're going to have a fast and prayer as a church. You can sign up on Google Docs or even call the office and tell them what time that you would like to pray and fast. And then at 6.30 at the hospitals of Aspirus, or what used to be St. Clair's, the Marshfield Hospital, we're going to gather, and at a certain location, there'll be a few songs that we'll sing within our cars with 89Q, a few prayers will be uttered on 89Q, then we'll all give a honk of thanksgiving for the staff there that has cared for our community so well. So I hope you'll take part in that. Well, let's go ahead and bow in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you for the season in which we remember our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. We thank you that you saw us in the midst of our sin, our need for redemption, for forgiveness, and that your Son willingly came and took on human flesh, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, and then paid the penalty of our sin which is death, was buried and rose on the third day. And as we celebrate Christmas, let us remember the wonder of God coming down and taking on human flesh for us. We thank you for that. And Father, we do pray for our community, our country, our world. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to Guide the doctors, nurses, technicians who are caring for those who are sick with CV-19. We pray for skill and wisdom for them and stamina and protection as they put themselves in harm's way. And that's true for many professions where individuals are putting themselves in harm's way. We ask for protection and we ask, Lord, that you would allow this virus to be tamped down very quickly. Father, guide our nation and guide our lives. May we honor you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Robert Walsh tells an autobiographical story about himself. He said, I was about 10 years old when I got a 10-speed bike. Now understand, when you're 10 years old, a bike is like a magic carpet ride. It's your key to freedom to leave the boundaries of the home and to explore the neighborhood. Now, Robert and his sister Liz, they were the youngest of nine. And if you're the baby, if you've been a baby in a family, you know that older sibs, they're just annoying. I'm sorry, it's just the truth. And so the youngers tend to, well, they tend to team up kind of in their own little foxhole to protect themselves from the annoying older sibs. And so they went everywhere on their bike, but, you know, it got to the point where Liz couldn't quite keep up with her brother Robert. You see, Robert had spent the summer mowing lawns and collecting money, and he got like $60, and his dad loaned him another $60, and 
He bought a 10-speed Schwinn because if you're the baby, you get the hand-me-downs. And in his family, the Walsh family, the older Sibs had bad taste in bikes. So they always got these lousy bikes. So now he had a used 10-speed bike. There was no way that Liz could keep up. She had a banana seat, five-speed. And because of the differences in the bikes, they began to drift further and further apart. Then Christmas came. Christmas morning in their house was a mixed bag. Oh, they had wonderful parents, but they had the kind of parents, don't be these kind of parents, they had the kind of parents that thought that underwear might be a good Christmas gift. It is not. Not for a 10-year-old. And so in their particular house, they had that torturous practice, which we do in my house, where each person unwraps one gift at a time everybody has to watch. Well, in a family of nine, they went from oldest to youngest. It could be like 45 minutes in between presents. And if your first present is like underwear, it's like purgatory for the next 45 minutes when you wait for your second turn. Well, mom and dad, Walsh, didn't always buy the best gifts. But this year, home run, at least it seemed that way. When Robert opened his first gift... It was a used record player. He couldn't believe it. He already owned a 10-speed bike, and now he had a used record player. This was like hitting a home run. He loved it until Liz opened her present. She got a brand-new 10-speed Schwinn bike. Robert had worked all summer to buy a used bike, and his sister gets a new one while he gets a used record player. Immediately, Liz, all excited, said, hey, Rob, let's go for a ride. It's too snowy outside, said Rob, as he pushed the used record player away from him. He was disgusted. He was grumpy all the rest of the day, and his father finally noticed. And his father said, hey, Rob, what's going on? And he said, Dad, I worked all summer. $60 for cutting the lawn. I borrowed $60 and I paid it back $120 to get that pink slip for a used bike. And, and Liz does nothing and you give her a brand new bike and you give me a used turntable. It's not fair. His dad smiled and said, Rob, I didn't just buy the bike for her. And then he walked away. Parents... Who can understand parental speech? It's like, it's like listening to someone speaking in tongues without an interpreter. It was clueless. What on earth? I didn't just buy the bike for her. What did that mean? Well, a few weeks later, Rob got over it, and, and he and Liz began to ride through the neighborhood once again, and now she could keep up. And, and the truth is, they had drifted apart, but they drifted back together. The two younger sibs against those older sibs. And as they grew, they matured, and when they turned 16, they got their driver's license together, and then they played the game of who could drive the car on fumes without stranding the car. Mom and Dad hated that. They took free tennis lessons together. They went to the pool together. They graduated together. They went off to college together. They graduated from college together, and, and it was around age 30 that Robert understood what his dad had said. We didn't get the bike just for her. They had gotten it for Robert, too. They had given a gift that was the greatest gift. It was a gift of friendship. And Rob and 
His baby sis had become best of friends, lifelong friends. That's what a good gift is like. It impacts one's life. It changes one's life. It's not just short, it's long-term. And today we're going to talk about the greatest gift. It's not just a gift for this earth. It's a gift for eternity. It's the gift of God's Son. It's the gift for those who embrace Christ as Savior for forgiveness, for redemption, for eternal life, for a future, a hope, a place in heaven with God forever and ever and ever. Let's read about the gift. I'm going to pick up in Luke chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor, or it means official, of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And all they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. I want us to notice that Luke roots Christ in history. Some would say today, perhaps, that Jesus isn't an historical figure. That is beyond credulity. And they would say all he is is a representation of good or morality or ethics. He's that, but he is a historical figure. And Luke goes out of his way to root Christ in the history of the day. So verse 1 tells us that Jesus was born at the time in which we have Caesar Augustus. As you probably know, Caesar Augustus is Octavian. And he brought the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, back to the Roman Empire. You remember back on the Ides of March in the year 44 BC, Julius Caesar has taken a lot of power and the Senate is very concerned and the Senate commands him, do not take your army and cross the Rubicon River. But Julius ignores them. He crosses the Rubicon River and so the Senate plots an assassination carried out by Cassius and Brutus of Shakespearean fame. E2 Brutus, you too Brutus. And remember the assassination of Julius Caesar throws all of Rome, the empire, into civil war. 17 years until Octavian takes the throne and he will rule until 14 AD. He will rule from 27 BC to 14 AD and he will bring the Roman peace. And you remember that Caesar Augustus is the first Caesar to take the name Augustus, which is an evil title. It means anointed one. At the time in which the true anointed one, the only anointed one, God comes in human flesh in the second person of the Trinity. We have an imposter, Octavian, taking the title for himself. But the birth of Christ is rooted in the history of Caesar Augustus. The second figure, not mentioned in this text, but in Matthew chapter 2 is Herod. Herod is a puppet king. He wasn't born a king. He was appointed a king by the Roman Empire. He's 66 years old 
when Jesus is born, he's suffering a debilitating mental illness. He has paranoia. He's concerned that people are out to get him. So much so that he actually murders his favorite wife, Mary Omni I. He murders three of his sons who might potentially succeed him. In fact, Octavian makes a little joke of it. And he says it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. He is a megomaniac. He's the builder. By the way, Herod is a family name, and he's the first of five Herods found in the Bible. He's called Herod the Great. He's the one that builds the, the, the best maritime port in Israel, Caesarea Maritima. He's the one that builds the Herodian. He doubles the size of the temple on the Temple Mount. He's Herod the Builder. But he's only half Jewish, half Jordanian. He's hated by the people and he knows at his death no one will shed a tear. So he arrests several hundred of the leading citizens, throws them in jail with the orders that at his last breath all of them are to be put to death, guaranteeing that there will be tears at the death of Herod. Herod is a historical figure like Jesus, and Jesus is rooted in history. The third individual, the second mentioned in the text, is Quirinius, who is governor or he is an overseer of Syria. The word used is an interesting one. It used to cause consternation because Quirinius isn't actually governor until 6 to 9 AD in Syria. And we know that Jesus is born in 4 BC. It's the difference in calendars, why we think of 1 AD and it was really 4 BC. Just differences in calendar. But they don't square up. But more recent study has revealed that the word used of Quirinius, which is translated governor, actually means high-ranking official. And it's used of a broad number of offices. And at the time in which Jesus is born, Quirinius is a commander-in-chief of the Syrian army, and that is the correct title. In other words, Luke's history is impeccable. And it says that there is a census during Quirinius's reign, and Josephus tells us that that actually happened. Again, Luke's history is impeccable. Jesus, far from being some kind of image of Morality or ethics is a historical figure. Jesus is the one that not only does Scripture talk about him, but the early historians talk about him. Josephus mentions him. Tacitus mentions him. Suetonius mentions him. Pliner the Younger, or Pliny the Younger mentions him. Um, Thalius, Lucian. Barserapian, the Talmud, all mention the birth and the life of Christ. But Jesus isn't only rooted in history, he's rooted in prophecy. And so we read that he is born in Bethlehem. All the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a thousand years earlier, David is told that from his throne, from Judea, from the area of Bethlehem will come a king from ancient of old. So a thousand-year prophecy is fulfilled in the life of Christ. 730 years earlier, 
Micah, 730 years before the birth of Christ, Micah said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem of Epitaph. Let me read that text to us. It's Micah 5, the second verse. But you, O Bethlehem of Epitaph, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And so Jesus was predicted a thousand years earlier. He was predicted 730 years earlier. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. Beyond that, Jesus takes his birthplace and he ties it into his life message. Bethlehem means house of bread. And what does Jesus say of himself in John 6.35? He says, I am the bread of life. If you don't have me, you don't have eternal life. And so he takes the place that he is born and he ties his message into it. He does the same thing with the older word, epirata, which means fruitful. Think of how he plays around with it in John 15, especially verse 8. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That's our word. And so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus is rooted in history. Jesus is rooted in prophecy. Jesus even takes the place of his birth and he makes the spiritual message of it. And Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one. And he hasn't come just to fulfill prophecy, just to fulfill history, but to save our souls. And he comes for the great and he comes for the least. As I think about an important person coming, I think about Queen Elizabeth and her visit to the United States in 2007. Her visit was considered so important that nine months prior to her six-day visit, an advance team came to our country to make sure the accommodations, the transportation, the food, she doesn't eat fish, all were perfect. And then there was the packing for her six-day trip. A reporter asked the secretary who worked for Queen Elizabeth, how much luggage does the queen bring? And he wouldn't answer. And the reporter said, well, rumor is it's between 4,000 and 6,000 pounds. And the secretary said, that's about right. When she comes, she has different crowns, different tiaras, different gowns, 50 pairs of white gloves, just in case one gets soiled for a six-day visit. That's how important she brings brooches and pens and cufflinks. Who wears cufflinks? For those who she comes in contact with, 4,000 to 6,000 pounds of luggage. That's how important Queen Elizabeth is. When I travel, it's a carry-on. That's how unimportant I am. But Jesus who is so much more important than any of us. He's God and man. When he came down, he didn't come in pomp and pageantry. He didn't come to a palace. He came to a stable cave. He came to the place that is too little among the clans of Judah to visit. And he came to be born through a virgin, a young girl named Mary betrothed, to a stone carpenter, a tecton named Joseph. And you remember the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that she will give birth to a son. And you remember her response in, 
in Luke 1, 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And an angel visits her betrothed, Joseph, and says, don't worry about the child within Mary's womb. The Holy Spirit has come upon her, so the child to be born is the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. And if the second century scholar Hippolytus is to be believed, who was later backed up by Chrysostom, Jesus was born in winter on December 25th. Now I want you to think about this. They're up north, 90 miles north in Nazareth. A census has been called by Caesar Augustus. Males have to return to the city of their birth. Mary accompanies Joseph, and they have to travel 90 miles south. And this is where I get a little annoyed at all of the books that I read Ray Ray, because every one of them has Mary seated on a donkey and Joseph holding the donkey as they walk the 90 miles. And one of my kids even said the other day, Dad, you are like, You are a little over the top with your dislike of those donkeys. I am. Because when Jesus is born, they go to the temple to pay the temple tax for the birth of a son. And they pay the poor person's tax of pigeons and turtle doves. They're far too poor to have a donkey. No, what we actually have is Mary, heavy laden with child, walking, hoofing 90 miles south from the Galilee down to Bethlehem, just below Jerusalem. And when she gets there, of course, the child is dropped with the jostling of 90 miles. And we know the story. There is no room in the inn. The B&B in Bethlehem is packed out. Now, I'm not being cute. Bethlehem at this time would be a little hamlet of about 300 people. It would have one communal inn, And you would get a bed. There wouldn't be very many of them. And then with the bed, you'd be served breakfast in the morning. It was a and b but all the rooms were taken. All the beds were claimed and taken. And so the stable cave, which would have been around back, I've been inside of it. It's not very large. It would have held the animals of those who traveled. That is where the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is born. You think of Queen Elizabeth with her pomp and pageantry and Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace, etc. And you think when she comes nine months before, she has to send an advanced team and she needs to pack light up to 6,000 pounds for six days, 1,000 pounds a day. You think of Caesar Augustus with all of the trappings of ancient Rome. You think of Herod who had the Herodian five miles south of Jerusalem, Masada down by the Dead Sea, several palaces just to himself. You think of Quirinius, who isn't in the barracks with the soldiers. He is in the highest of places where he lives. And here we have Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who leaves the splendors of heaven, comes down to earth for us and is born to a virgin named Mary who is betrothed to a tecton, a stone carpenter named Joseph, born in a stable cave, lives a perfect life, 
becomes a stone carpenter, hangs out with fishermen, becomes a peripatetic rabbi. He teaches as he goes from village to village. He does incredible miracles. His teaching is the words of God himself. Never sins and lays down his life as a payment of sin. The sin of humanity is thrust on him. The perfect fellowship with the Father is broken. So he cries out, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He dies, and three days later, he is resurrected back to life, conquers the last enemy, death. That if we by faith would believe in him and accept his death as the payment of our confessed sin and the power of God's spirit, we begin to turn from our sin and towards righteousness real repentance in our life. We are given eternal life. Have each person here, have you accepted Christ as Savior? That's the Christ of Christmas. Just a couple final thoughts. First, I want to remind myself that God orchestrates history. God orchestrates history. Don't Think otherwise. Caesar thinks that he is initiating a census throughout the empire to count people and to tax people. But God has directed that to fulfill prophecy from 2 Samuel 7 and Micah 5-2 to bring a virgin and a betrothed 90 miles south to Bethlehem so that the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, is born precisely where it was predicted a thousand years and 730 years prior. God orchestrates history. And I think that is comforting to us. Sometimes we look around, we don't like what's going on. Remember that history is in the hands of God. God orchestrates history and his purposes cannot, will not ever be thwarted by any government, any policy, any politic. God orchestrates history. Second, I want to remember the model of Christ. It's a model of humility. God. King of kings, Lord of lords, 10,000 upon 10,000 angels at his beck and call takes on human flesh, is born of a virgin, a pauper child, engaged to a fine tradesman, but also a pauper. Not born in a palace, but born in a stable cave. The humility of Christ. And over and over again, you and I are called to imitate Christ. And so when people look at a Christ follower, they should not see a bully. They should not see an arrogant or proud person. They should see someone who imitates the Savior, who has the humility and grace and kindness of Christ. Like many of you. Like many of you, the model of Christ is humility. Third, I want to remind myself 
that judging by appearances often is wrong. You remember that famous statement in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. I want us to look at the ordering in Luke's gospel and Matthew. Who is first? Caesar Augustus. If we go over to Matthew, second Herod. Who's third? Quirinius. Who's fourth? Joseph. Who's fifth? Mary. Who's last? Jesus. Because that's the order that man would put it in. Octavian, Herod, Quirinius, Joseph, Mary, Jesus. But what's the authentic order? Jesus. Mary. Joseph. Quirinius. Herod. And the one who would dare to call himself the anointed one, August. Augustus. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And finally, I am so impacted. May you be impacted by verse 7. There was no room in the inn. Of course, historically, it's talking about the, the inn in Bethlehem, the B&B, the communal inn. But spiritually, it's talking about the inn of our hearts. Make sure that there is room in your inn even during this Advent as we prepare our hearts, don't allow the trappings of Christmas to push out the centrality of Christ. Christmas is about Christ. And make sure, my friend, that you know Christ, not just as a historical figure or not just as a model of morality and ethics. Both of those are true. But he's so much more. He's the Savior. He is the Augustus, the anointed one, the Messiah, who pays the penalty of our sin, who lays down his life, not for his sin he had none, but for our sin, that if by faith we would believe in Christ, we would be given eternal life. Make room in your heart for Christ. Well, Merry Christmas to you all. Hope to see some of you online or in person on Christmas Eve, Eve, or Christmas Eve, may you have a blessed Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Christ of Christmas, your Son, the Messiah, who offers us eternal life through faith in him. Father, if there's some that may not know Christ, may today be the day of faith. May you grant faith, and by faith may some say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things. I've thought wrong things. I've said wrong things. I've had the wrong attitude. I failed to do what I ought to do. I'm a sinner. And I accept your death as a payment of my sin, your resurrection as life after the grave. Help me to turn from my sin, begin this journey as a Christ follower. And may you be the King of kings, the Lord of lords in my life. And for all of us who know Christ, may we seize the opportunity to tell others about Christ and may Christ truly be, Lord, central in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.